Good morning. See the uh, word of the Lord, Romans 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and, moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. All the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will have hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who who have not heard will understand. This is why I have been hindered from coming to you. But now that There is no more place for me to work in those regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia, we're pleased to make a contribution for the poor among God's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For, the gent- for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them 
their material blessings. So after I have completed this this task and made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in the struggle by praying to God for me, Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace will be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Do you guys remember the Three Dog Night song, I've Never Been to Spain? No one does. Okay, cool. Great. Well, Paul never makes it to Spain. Someone reminded me of that as I was walking down the aisle. So, Paul, Three Dog Night. What do they have in common? That's what I want to explore this morning. Just kidding. It's not what I want to explore. Hello, everyone. You doing okay? I'm going to say a prayer for you. If you're in, standing in the back, you need to see there's some room in the splash zone here. Um, something to think about. Heavenly Father, will you, will you just help us right now to hear these words and um, not simply just consider them in our minds, but um, may they be driven down into our hearts. And God, we ask for something like that all the time, um, but we want to do it with fresh, uh, fresh enthusiasm, fresh desire, fresh, um, fresh need this morning. Uh, we are not just here uh, to... Yeah, to pass, pass the morning or just uh, even to be together, though that's important. We, we want to hear from you and, and be united around this word uh, of your love. So help me and, and help us to hear in Christ's name. Amen. So we're coming to the end of this letter. Uh, it's this week 21 of 22. Um, this letter uh, written by this paradox of a person, the Apostle Paul. Uh, some people read the New Testament, they love Jesus, they can't stand Paul. Uh, the more you get into it, actually, um, there's, there's a lot to love about Paul, though he does have his, his, rough, his rough edges. Um, he's, he's a trained and elite rabbi when we first meet him on the pages of the New Testament. And he's actually determined to stomp out the movement of Jesus. He sees it as a, as a, uh, a pollution of the Judaism that he loved. Um, but then we know that in Acts chapter 9, we see this dramatic conversion that takes place in this man Saul of Tarsus' life. And he becomes the Apostle Paul by nothing less than having an encounter with the very Jesus that he was trying to drive out you know, Jesus' followers. And um, if you read the account, it's pretty hard for, for Paul to come back uh, from that as the same person. It, it profoundly uh, altered the, the rest of his, his, his life. And... Um, and by the time he writes this letter, especially by the time you get to the end of this letter, this is chapter 15 of 16, though of course it wouldn't have had the chapter and verse divisions when it was originally received. But by the time he gets to this section of the chapter, you see a special love that he has, a special calling that he has to not just carry the message of the gospel to the Jewish world, but particularly to the non-Jewish world, to the, to the nations of that time. And so Paul, as much as anyone, though he'd never made it to Spain, uh, does have this profound desire to see the message of Jesus get all the way to the ends of the earth. And a large part of this letter, and, and 
Whatever you think about it, right? If you're not on board with the claims of Jesus yet, you are so welcome here. We welcome your questions. We welcome your doubts. I want to just say that. If, if you have a hard time approaching the scriptures and they feel offensive to you, you're so, so welcome here. But whatever we think, whether we're totally on board or totally like skeptical about this letter, historically, it can be argued that it's one of the most significant influential letters in human history. The amount of change that has come into the human story because of these 16 chapters and this letter to the church at Rome is profound. And, 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 and um, what Paul has been arguing for over and over again is that against all odds, um, God is, is bringing together across the spectrum of humanity this common family united by the rescuing love of God. And it's a mystery that Paul like stumbles for even words to explain at times, but he's saying, listen, as, as far-fetched as it may seem, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, no matter where you are, and all, all the spectrum of humanity are being brought together in this new family. On Adoption Sunday, it's important to remember, brought together in this new family by the rescuing love of God. I don't know if you were here for it, but we began looking at this letter all the way back on July 1st, and we started with a video sermon, and that, I just wanted to take a moment and apologize for that in person. We probably are never doing that again, so if you saw it, you were here for it, that's a magical moment in our history, which we'll always share, um, but hopefully we'll never, we'll never do that again. But, um, as we near the end, some of the same themes that are mentioned in that, the beginning, that opening, opening chapter, are being revisited here as Paul's concluding this letter. So last week we mentioned an important historical detail which helps us to frame the, like what's been going on in the last two chapters. But in AD 54, there was a large returning of the Jewish population to Rome. They had been uh, severely persecuted and driven out um, of, of the city. But in AD 54, there was sort of a reprieve on that persecution and the, and the Jewish people were coming back in. And many of them were encountering these new clusters of followers of Jesus that had had sort of followed the teachings of this Jewish rabbi and come to believe the message of the gospel. And so there was this strange merging that was taking place in Rome and all over the empire of these two communities, the Gentile believers and the, and the Jewish believers in Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, a huge debate in the New Testament is how Jewish do you have to be to become Christian if Jesus is, is the Messiah of Israel? And, and a lot of the practices that, that went around you know, following Torah were hotly debated. And so Paul's writing into this tense environment to do a unifying work. To say, listen, as against all odds, as far-fetched as it may sound, you are being brought in to the same family. So in the last chapter, in chapter 14, he's been dealing with these direct behaviors. Some of you have been eating kosher and some of you have not. Some of you have been keeping Sabbath in a certain way, others, uh, others differently. Some of you have been eating uh, meat that's from the market that's been offered in pagan temples. Some of you uh, are deeply offended by that and you need to respect your conscience. Some of you have wine, others abstain. So now he's going from those narrow practices back out to a wide view to say the reason for grace in the nitty-gritty details is this larger story that's being told. Basically this, if you trace from Genesis to Revelation, what's a central theme that shows up all through the story? It's this, God has been, has been planning with a force of redemptive love to create a united people that are his family, no matter what their starting place 
And he begins with a particular work with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a family that becomes a nation. He begins in a particular place, but his plan has always been to spill the banks of any ethnicity and to welcome people from every tribe and tongue and nation. You get to the, the end, the final pictures. As mysterious and bizarre as they are in Revelation, it is a clear welcoming of every tribe and tongue and nation into the family of God. And there is hard, reconciling work that's being done in Romans to make that grand vision possible. We've talked about this. It's come up in Romans a few times. What do you need, really, to change? As an individual or as a group of people, what do you need to change? Well, at least you need a vision of where you're going. You need a picture of what you're living into. And then once you've got a picture of what you're living into, you, you have to go from where you are into that picture. So you have to have practical steps along the way. The practical steps along the way are how you live into that vision. And, and everything that we learn from the scriptures and from like social sciences, from those who break habits and make new ones is you're going to have so much more success if you don't do it alone. You have to have a vision. <laughs> You have to have practical steps along the way into that vision, and you have to have a community that's walking with you. That's what Paul's been attempting to do at several sections in this later. We, we remember this is true, right? I said of an individual or a group, Paul's life was transformed by tremendous breakthrough, like super spiritual encounter. He's the person who's going to speak at the conference. You have no idea. I was killing Christians. Then I became one. What? Okay. So his, his life experiences this powerful breakthrough, but then the habits of his life are realigned with this breakthrough. This is how change takes place. We do have moments of breakthrough, but some of us only sort of, we sort of only gasp on the fumes of our last breakthrough because the breakthrough never actually got down into our habits and changed the very nature of the decisions we make on, our, on, on a regular basis. And so we change by breakthrough and habits. You got that. You got that getting excited. I'm only on page two. Okay, here we go. One, one of the practical steps, so breakthrough and habits, one of the practical steps along the path to vision that Paul gives us for maintaining uh, this sense of unity and redemption is to go back to the scriptures. Basically, like, don't stop immersing, your, immersing yourself in the story. Like, you're going to get to places where the, the details of your daily life are really overwhelming. The, 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 the tension point in your homes, the tension point in your work, in your vocation, in your life is going gonna, is gonna to overwhelm you. And all you're going to be able to see is, like, what's right in front of you. At that point, it's really important for you to have another source to go to. And he's, he's commending to us the scriptures. He's saying, go back and immerse yourself in the word of God to remember the whole story that's being told. These promises are not brand new. They've been coming for a long time. This is what he says. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Jesus Christ had. I want to ask you just to pay attention to a couple of those words for, for, for a few minutes and, and see uh, a connection point here between three things, endurance, encouragement, and hope. Paul, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, is saying, 
you're going to need endurance to make it into this vision of, of, of a reconciled humanity, of, of us all being sons and daughters of God, of you being filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and asked to be full participants in the kingdom of God and all that means. Mercy and forgiveness and justice and generosity and truth and, and healing and power and love to, to walk into that vision, right? There's, there's practical steps, but you're going to experience profound resistance, profound internal resistance, your flesh, external resistance, the message and system of the world, and then spiritual resistance. There are actual forces, spiritual forces that work against us. So it's not just like we breezily, well, now I know the steps. I've got the vision. I've got the people. I'm headed into it, right? We experience profound resistance. So in order to make it, we have to have endurance. We have to keep going in spite of the the pain, (laughs) in spite of the resistance. And then along the way, we also need encouragement. We don't just need a willingness to keep going amidst pain. We also need encouragement. We need reminders of who we are. We need reminders of the the community we're in, reminders of the story that we're in. When those things are present, encouragement with endurance, it leads to a certain type of hope. I, uh, I ran the New York City Marathon in 2016. Put your hands up if you just ran it this year. A hand almost went up and then didn't. Put your hand up if you started it this year. Come on. Bless you. Uh, it's so freaking hard. Um, and person who, who shyly put your hand up, we know how fast you were going. So don't even shake your head. Um, so here's what happened. It was going to be my second time running it. I began my training late. Those who know me aren't surprised. Um, I wanted to add my miles quickly, so I had worked up to be able to do 10 miles. And then some friends were like, hey, we're going to go on a long run. We're doing 20 and I was like, friends, great. So I went from 10 to 20 all at once. Not smart. They say, don't do that. I did it. I was already struggling with a condition in my foot, and uh, it, got, it got worse. And I was trying to deal with it, uh, but I had the money invested, and I'm stubborn. So on race day, I got there. I was feeling good. Um, I, I felt like I could do better than I had done the first time. But by mile 13, this condition is sort of like I had an inflamed nerve in my toe uh, on my left side called Morton's neuroma. Look it up. Fantastic condition. Um, And by mile 13, my foot was in absolute agony. Like every step felt like stepping on a nail. And um, I have such a practical picture that day of endurance, encouragement, and, and hope. Um, endurance was this. It was just simply taking steps. It was simply keeping going um, in the face of pain. And my, honestly, my reasoning wasn't that noble. This is an illustration. It's not going to be as noble as the real thing that we're after. But I basically just didn't want to go home and tell my kids that I quit. That was my entire thing. I was like, I have boys that are of, the, of a certain age that they're going to make fun of me if I don't finish. So I'm going to keep going. So that beautiful, prideful motivation carried me forward. Endurance. But with each step, it was getting worse. And so around mile 16, I was like, forget the kids. I don't have to see them anymore. Um, <laughs> the next time I see a medical tent, I'm going to stop. I can't do this anymore. I'm in, I'm in agony. And then I saw Michael Weissman. Some of you guys, deep breath. Some of you guys know Michael Weissman. He was a member of this community for, for years, and he's, he's since moved away. Um, but Michael had helped me get back into running when I was first, when I was first getting back in it. Um, he ran the first 10 miles of the first marathon I ran. He snuck in. He lived around Bay Ridge. He snuck into the race. This is illegal. Do not tell New York Roadrunners that this happened. But he snuck in and ran the first 10 miles of the race with me. So like he's jogging over and getting me Gatorade, and I'm like, what's wrong with 
with you. He's like, I'm just, just feeling good, man. And he's just like getting me Gatorade. And, and uh, he helped me make it through the first marathon. So he shows up at mile 16, my, my I don't know what you call it, like your knight in shining armor. He would definitely want me to make the joke right now about him being a Jewish man helping a Gentile pastor uh, in the marathon. And it ties into the theme of uh, Romans 16. But I was enduring just barely by mile 16, and then he came alongside, and he gave me this picture of encouragement that I will never forget, as silly as it is. Um, He was running alongside me, and by the time I got to the top of First Avenue going into the Bronx, I was literally falling over on the ground and having to stretch my leg out. Then I was cramping so bad, my legs were trembling that I couldn't get back up. So Michael is like, Helping me stretch, getting me Gatorade, picking me up, reminding me that I want to do this. I'm like, you're crazy. Putting his hand on my lower back, like getting me going. And he did this like six or seven times. I had endurance a little bit, but his encouragement gave me a certain type of hope, which was like, all I wanted to do was go in the medical tent at at 16. And he got me, he got me to the finish line. He left me in the park and sort of like, here, you got to make it the rest of the way. And I just like, just made it the rest of the way, barely. Um, and, 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 and something that was not possible for me became possible because I was willing to do some of the endurance and he was willing to do the encouragement. The word encouragement in the New Testament, when it's translated, it, it, it means to put courage into someone. If you're wondering what it is, it's to, it's to remind someone about who, who they are at the deepest level, beyond their failures or mistakes or misgivings or insecurity to, or their own pain or their circumstances, to put courage in someone and to remind them who they really are, to remind them of maybe even if they can't believe who they really are, what they can be if God is, 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 is involved. What we know this, right? It's not hallmarky to say that hope is, is the most powerful, is one of the most powerful and essential forces in human life. When we are out of hope, we are stuck. When we are out of hope, we can't pick ourselves up, we can't move forward. But when we have it, we can take steps into seemingly impossible things, things that that we actually, visions that were too far, that we could not have gotten to on our own. But with endurance and encouragement, all of a sudden, a a particular type of hope comes into focus that would not have been there. And the key ingredients in this hope are very simple. The first is just don't quit. It's going to get painful. It's good. There's going to be profound resistance. And one of the, the things, and maybe it's like hope has to play back into this, is just don't quit. The one thing you'll, you, like, if you quit, you're never going to know at all. But if you don't quit, there's a, there's a chance that the encouragement comes along. And when it does, courage is put into you, and it fills us with hope. Now, that's like an inspirational self-help message that you could get outside of church. Endurance and encouragement equals hope. Do you even need God? But here's the thing that struck me this week looking at this, is in the passage it says, that we serve a God who is full of hope. I want to ask you seriously in the secret part of your imagination, do you think of God as full of hope? Maybe you think of God as full of power. God is full of judgment. God is full of like, I keep my promises because I'm God. I don't have to hope. I do it. Maybe that's the picture of God that you have. But it says he's full of hope. <laughs> That, that God is immensely believing the best. That, that says something about the character of God. God is immensely believing the best. 
God is work, to take a passage from earlier in the letter, God is working things out for good. God works all things together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. That's a profound thing for God to be full of hope in that way, that he is redeeming, that he is remaking, that, that God looks into the story of the prodigal son and everyone who's around sees this broken man who's finally come to this, the end of himself. He's at his bottom eating the pig slop and God sees the restored son back at home with the robe on and the ring and the party being thrown. He is immensely believing the best, remaking, renewing. I, I've been... Uh, Sorry for, for the, all, all the little illustrations today to be little stories about me, but I got the mic and this is what I've written down. Um, I've been reading some pretty sweet self-helpy uh, time management books. If you're looking for a category of books that have great looking covers, self-help time management books is where it's at. They're horrible. Um, but I've been reading this, this out-of-date out one uh, from like 1989. Do you guys remember the Franklin Covey day planner system? Anybody put your hands up? Anybody have some old Franklin Covey in your house? All right, there we go. Anyway, I'm reading this book. It's like 10 Essential Laws of Time and Life Management. I'm like, I need some of this. I, I so, like when I came up in, in church, it was like I came, I came to faith. And when I came back to the church, the, the mega church thing was on. And it was like everyone was becoming a leader. And everyone was like 21, indispensable laws of leadership. And I so resisted all that. that I th- and I threw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit. And I left a lot of like practical life skills ignored. Because I was just like, I just want to be a hippie with Jesus and other people, man. Um, and now I'm going back and be like, you know what? I need some, some time management. Thank you very much. Um, and in this book, it recommends that you make a personal constitution. I'm not even recommending this to you necessarily. This is what I've been doing. And it essentially says, and he has this productivity pyramid. I'm sorry for saying this, but it's in there. And the bottom of it is your governing values, like the things that are most important to you. And then the next step up is like long-range goals. What do you want to be in 20 years, 10 years, 5 years? And then the next is like immediate goals. Okay, what do you want to do by Christmas? And then the next, on the top of the pyramid is, da- is daily tasks. And he's like, we have tons of disconnection in our life because our gov- what we say we're about most, there's no connection between that and what we're actually doing on a day-to-day basis. So you look up after a week and you're frustrated and you can't even necessarily name why. And sometimes it's because the things that you say matter most to you have had no bearing on your Wednesday, no bearing on your Thursday. Like they're just out there somewhere floating and it, it creates dis-ease. It, it, it creates a lack of peace in our life so the book says so what I'm doing the book recommends is define your and I'm like I know my my governing values of course I'm, I'm a pastor they're in the bible um I, I know what I believe but it's been so good to write them down quite frankly my personal constitution has like 14 paragraphs and each has a little heading and it says this is the thing that I wanted to share all that was to share this <laughs> like you got to get concise it's one of my governing values okay guys <laughs> Not quite there yet, going to match to a daily task soon. But um, it says when you word your constitution, you can do it any way you want, but it recommends that you state the thing as if it's true already about you. Like my first one is to seek first, is to seek God first. Isn't surprising? No. Um, I'm a pastor, guys, professional Christian, don't forget. Um, 
The second is about my marriage. So the first title is Seek First, and the second is Covenant Love. I'm just going to read to you from my personal constitution, and you're going to know, even as I read it, that I am not complete, I'm not there. But I've, I've written it in the, in the, I am there. Like, I want to read it as if God is going to accomplish this and make it true. So I love God with all my heart, mind, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I am in union with Jesus through the gospel of his life, death, and resurrection. I live a life of worship that is full of and reliant on the Holy Spirit. I see God and his kingdom as my life's first priority. My life is a life of prayer. It is a prophetic call to see God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I live with full faith and expectation that anything God has promised to do, God will do. Here's the one about my marriage. I'm leaving some parts out. I am a loving and romantic husband. I adore Allison and she knows it. She knows my full support in our dynamic partnership and the covenant love that we share. We laugh, we cry, we pray together. We plan our family life together and we follow through. That's all I'm going to say for now. It was, it was strangely beautiful for me to write it in the accomplished sense. Because what it got me back to is there's a picture that God has of my life. And I'm so familiar with the picture that I have of my life. But the picture God has of my life is full of hope. The picture God has of my life is like this stuff that's accomplished. This stuff that is true. This stuff that's like the very best, fully sanctified, fully mature, fully healed, fully alive version of me. And you know what? There's a version of you that God has in his mind and heart. And it is absolutely immensely full of hope. So the most beautiful, powerful passage or verse in this is that may the God of hope fill you with a sense of himself so that you would become a person of hope and that would overflow in your life. And that is, it is, if you're getting close to the heart of Romans, there it is. That the very character and nature and overflowingness of God that's true in God's character would become true of our character. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's going to require endurance. It's going to require us linking arms and encouraging one another. But we serve a God of hope and we can be a people of hope. The second thing I want to, I want to mention from this is um, Paul gives some crucial instructions for maintaining a posture of acceptance. And we have a lot to learn as a church in this regard. I'll just read it to you quickly, the, the, the part I'm mentioning. Accept one another then just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ is to become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He's saying, listen, accept one another no matter how difficult it is, no matter how bad this this person's breath is, no matter how bad you imagine their background to be, no matter how different they are, accept this person into the family because all the way back to Abraham, God's been planning to do this. And when you're rejection cuts against the narrative that God is writing in the world, that's a dangerous place to be. Let your acceptance be in line with what God has been doing all the way back to the beginning. So 
Paul, at different points of this letter, he's writing, he's writing to this Jewish community. He's writing to this Gentile community. He's writing to them together. They're reading it and hearing it in the same room, right? People that have been in tension, hearing a reconciling letter being read, and they're in the same room about to share a meal together. And their eyes are cutting across the room, right? You've got specific people in mind when you hear certain, certain sentences in this letter if you're part of the first recipients. And Paul's doing something interesting. When he's talking to the Gentiles, he's commending the Jewish people to them. And when he's talking to the Jewish people, he's, he's commending the Gentiles to them. Paul is doing, even in the writing of this letter, the work of a peacemaker. Peacemakers among us, God bless them, this is what they do. They help bring together parties that are apart and to reconcile them. And the way they begin is they move between as mediators. And they say over here, you don't understand. There's some good things you're missing. There's, there's a misunderstanding that's taking place. This person is it's better than, 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 than you're thinking. There's forgiveness that can change this. And then they go to the other person. They commend, right? They're commending on either side, doing the work of a peacemaker. And in reality, if you've had experience in the church for very long, or you've had experience maybe really in any community, many of you will have, you'll know the opposite of this, which is just secretly to get it off our chest, we poison one another's picture of the other. So we give a little accusation. When we're just together with this person and they're not there, we give a little accusation of what they're really like, and isn't that so annoying? And then we're over here with this person, and we give a little accusation. We just poison the water just a little bit. Instead of commending to the other, we're doing the work of accusation. Back in a former life, uh, I, I was training to be an actor, and I got to play the role of the supervillain, Iago, in Shakespeare's Othello. You guys know the play? And uh, Iago is this, is this masterful character in, in Shakespeare because he, he, he befriends Cassio and he, he poisons him against Othello. He befriends Othello and poisons him against Cassio. But the audience gets to see, he has these like terrifying monologues where he walks and he speaks, he breaks the fourth wall and he talks to the audience and he brings them into what he's doing. So it's like one of those agonizing things where you see it happening and you can't do anything about it. The Hebrew word translated for Satan is the accuser. He does that work as his specialty. All the way back, you see in the, in the book of Job, right? It's one of the only times we see Satan accusing a person to God. He's like, Job only follows you because you bless him. We're way more familiar with the other part, which is him accusing God to us. God's never going to forgive you, right? He's accusing us and accusing God at the same time. Did God really say that? Is God really going to meet your needs? You think God's really, don't be so unsophisticated. Don't be so unscientific. Don't be so unrealistic. God's not like that. God's not that, right? The accuser, the voice is real and powerful. I want to set that up. There is a profound difference between being a reconciler and being an accuser, and one is right in line with the voice of the enemy of our soul. What are we going to be, accusers or reconcilers? The accuser represents the worst of people to others so that discord and division is sown. The peacemaker works for reconciliation by representing the best of other people, or if not the best, at least the hope that they can change. And that makes acceptance possible. That's what makes acceptance possible. Are we accusers or are we peacemakers? Paul is saying accept one another the way God has accepted you. All the justifications you have for why you're your way, 
God knows all those. And he also knows the other person's justification. He's trying to bring us around the table together. Brought into the same family. Again, adopted. He says this. If the podium right here, the, mic sta- the music stand represents the threshold of acceptance. He's saying, listen, I know you have differences. But before you work them out, I want you to come through the threshold of acceptance and then begin working out your differences. Don't stay on the outside of acceptance while you try to sort out how you can agree so you can walk together. This is true, right, in all types of the best covenant, in real friendship, in real love. Certainly, right, in the covenant of marriage, you come across the threshold and you don't even know yet how much of a stranger this person is. You think that you're compatible, you think that you know each other because you dated for six months or for a year or whatever, you come across the threshold and you find out all the stuff about them but you work through continuing that acceptance past the threshold right the covenant threshold saying we're family no matter what now we can sort it out tremendous intimacy is possible when you bend the acceptance that God has given you to another person and say I'm not going anywhere even if you're not the person you're supposed to be power of acceptance for remaking the world. There's so many things people wanted Jesus to take up as a power to remake the world. Violence, throw out the oppressors, establish our thing, become king. He's like, let me show you the power of acceptance for remaking the world. Last thing, on top of endurance and encouragement and hope, and on top of this power of acceptance is, is finally the power of the gospel which certainly ties them all together. But this is what Paul's been talking about from the beginning. This is how he starts the letter, right? The first chapter he says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And now he comes back to that theme. Track with me, put your eyes on the screen and follow, follow this with me because I want you to see a couple of things really quickly about the power of the gospel. He mentions at least three really good ones and I'm gonna say them fast, so I want you to be with me. I myself am convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you, you're, you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another, right? I've been commending you to one another and I wanna say this, I believe, like God believes, that you're full of goodness, that you're full of knowledge and you're competent. Yet I've written to you quite boldly on some points uh, to remind you of them again. I, I, I believe this about you, you still need some instruction Because of the grace of God given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Jesus Christ in my service to God. I will not not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So Jerusalem, all the way around to Illyricum, I, I, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So, he's, he's, he's gonna say amen and then he's gonna say what's up to a bunch of people in Romans 16, but he's ending where he began, the power of the gospel. The first thing he mentions is the power of the message. This is a message of reconciliation. Despite its paradox, it has the power to make a human being come alive. 
It has the power to unite people who are on disparate ends of the human spectrum and to bring them into family. It has, the po- it has the power to elicit a type of forgiveness that did not seem possible before. It has the power to let you know that, the sp- like that, that, that you are God's own child adopted into the family. And Paul had seen firsthand how this paradoxical message of the gospel had, had worked in all manner of settings. <laughs> I love what N.T. Wright says about him, and I wouldn't do a sermon without quoting him in this series. Again and again, he found himself standing in synagogues and marketplaces and private houses and public halls before magistrates and rulers and ordinary folk in towns uh, and villages. He was telling them the extraordinary news that there was one true God rather than the multiplicity of pagan deities, that this one true God had made the world, still loved it, and was bringing it justice and hope, and that this God, to fulfill this plan, had sent his own son, his own second self, to suffer the fate of a rebel against the empire and now to be enthroned as the world's true Lord. My goodness, he's good at writing stuff. This message of reconciliation, Paul had seen it work over and over again in setting after setting. But not just the power of the message. This is so important. He says, also by signs and wonders. This message is not just for intellectual reasoning. It's not just like, see how God has done it and now you can believe in your mind. It is no, here's a God and you're meeting this God. And you know how you're meeting him? He's setting you free from addiction. He's setting you free from anxiety and depression. He's he's healing your life. He's healing your marriage. He's healing this pattern of thought that's defined you for so long. You're, you're, you're You're seeing signs and wonders of the kingdom of God breaking in. People have enough to eat. People are radically generous. It's not just something that we say, oh, oh, I really like this Jesus person. He's a life coach for me. He's making things better. No, we're being apprehended by the power of the Holy Spirit. A God that you can meet in conscious experience. If you're longing for that and have an experience that I want you to know, today could be your day. I'm not saying that with church hype. I'm saying God's presence is here. Accompanying the message of the gospel is the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're longing, like I've heard so much, I want to encounter the presence of God. Ask for that today. And the last thing is the power of generous love. The scholars who who talk about the translation at the end basically say that Paul gets weird. Like it's already been weird, some of you think. But he's talking about money, (laughs) And sometimes in church, when people start to talk about money, people get weird. Pastors get weird. Like, they either get, like, way too enthusiastic about it, or they get really awkward about it. And Paul does a little bit of that. He's like, people have given a gift, and I'm not going to say who, and I'm tearing it over here, and maybe I'll come and see you. I'm going to Spain. Um, <clears throat> why, why is he like that? Because the gospel had begun at Jerusalem, <laughs> It had spilled out. And some of those people in the early part of the movement, right, they were saying, you got to be Jewish to be Christian. And that had, done, that had wounded some of the people in the Gentile and the nations that had received the gospel. But they also had to admit, we would have never heard about this if it hadn't come from Jerusalem. And some of those in Jerusalem sold everything they had. And they pulled their resources together and they sent out, they sent out resources of love into the world. This thing had, had, had started as a Jewish movement in Jerusalem and now... Some of those people in Judea, some of those people in Jerusalem are suffering. Scholars sort of speculate as to why, but there, were, there, was, there was some real poverty among the Jerusalem church, the people in Judea. And they needed to receive from these people out in the empire, from Macedonia and Achaia, how humbling it would have been 
to be in need, how humbling it would have been even so to have to accept help from these Gentiles that in the beginning we weren't even sure we were ready to let in. How humbling for these Gentiles who, who received this now to have to give back like this cycle of like whenever you think you've got it all together, God raises a standard and shows you that he's holy. Whenever you think you're utterly and totally broken, God comes underneath you with grace. And this cycle of beautiful acceptance is extended, this generous love. And so Paul's carrying a gift from one Gentile church to the heart of, the, of Jewish Christianity in, in Judea. And even though was, there was tension in it, it was an outworking of the gospel because there's always the message, but there's always an encounter with the Holy Spirit and there's always an outworking of a generous life. What's true of God begins to overflow out of you, whether it's hope or generous giving, that that begins to be true of your very character. So Paul concludes, we conclude with this. Where are the places that you know you need endurance, encouragement, and hope? You can ask God for them this morning and believe that he is, is more radically hopeful than you, you've imagined. Where do we as individuals or we as a church need to practice the power of acceptance? Have we played the role of accuser or have we played the role of peacemaker? Some of you will begin to feel even some conviction in your own life that, ah, I know I'm called into that peacemaker role. Are we seeing this power of the gospel? We know the message is is full of power and reconciliation, but, but let's ask God, would you demonstrate the power of your Holy Spirit here? Would you make us a generous people overflowing with what's true of you? In any of those ways, as the Spirit leads you, we're just gonna respond in these next few moments as we continue worshiping, as we come to the table. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we've gone almost all the way through this book and we certainly haven't got everything that's there. But I pray that you would do the the prophetic and powerful work that you can do. Holy Spirit, that you would speak the thing that each of us needs to hear. The message of hope or the message of acceptance or a message of the power of your Holy Spirit and your gospel. Lead us right now. We prayed at the beginning for ears to hear you. I pray even now that you would just make it so clear how you're leading each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.